Our Old Covenant reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 56. This is the Word of God. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. And then our new covenant reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. The Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray For as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they fade and they fall. But this, the word of our God from Psalm 56 and from Romans 8, it endures forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to your holy word, which was breathed out by your Holy Spirit, we come as those who are needy. We come as those who are weak. We come as those who are slow to believe and quick to let this world and its troubles overshade us. And so, Lord, we ask that by your word you would come mightily through the power of your spirit to teach us, to show us, to remind us of your grace and your goodness. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. The text for this morning's sermon will be Psalm 56, so if you've closed your Bibles and I didn't tell you to stay there, you're going to have to go back uh, to Psalm 56. Now throughout the Psalms, the saints of old are heard singing continued refrains of trust in their Lord. They're continually trusting in their God, while at the same time, they were by no means hesitant to express the reality of the hardships and the fears that they had. Though Psalm 56, as we just read, is composed as a lament, which expresses David's experience, yet it is dominated by that confident hope in the Lord. Reading Psalm 56 or reading Romans 8 we may ask the question, what is the relationship between fear and faith? How does the Christian navigate distressing pressures and the pains of this life while at the same time being confident 
in the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of their Lord. The answer we find is, is, is not in pretending that the distresses and the fears are some type of an illusion, but in knowing the surpassing love of God for His people in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this psalm, the Lord invites us through the prayer of one of His saints to see that indeed the Lord is for His beloved saints. Even as they endure many dangers, toils, and snares. So that their song through their Lord can likewise be just as David's song. When I am afraid, verse 3. I will not be afraid, verse 4. Now David surely has good reason to fear in the context of this psalm. The title of this psalm, if you look up there, the title tells us that this psalm was composed when the Philistines had seized David in Gath. And 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 10 to 15 recounts that event that led David into this situation wherein this psalm was composed. He fled to Gath because he was fleeing from Saul. Fleeing from Saul who was seeking to kill him. And so that the risk that was posed to David staying in the land of Israel was so great that he fled to Gath. Now Gath may be in your mind and you may be wondering, why do you remember Gath? Well, you may remember Gath because Gath once had a hometown hero. A mighty warrior who led his armies. And that hero's name was Goliath. And here is David, who as a young man killed Goliath with a stone and a sling. And now he shows up in Gath and is at the mercy of the Philistines. How desperate must David have been to leave Israel and to go into enemy territory where his head was valuable. His own people have become his enemy and his enemies are still his enemies. It's no wonder he exposes his great fear there in verse 3. When I am afraid... Now, I want to look at this psalm this morning in four sections. Number one, there's promise in pain. Two, though the detractors are determined. Three, the protector's care is perfect. And four, our deliverance is definite. And I often see that a lot of you take notes, so I'll repeat it again. First, there is promise in pain, verses 1 to 4. Though the detractors are determined, verses 5 to 7, the protector's care is perfect, verses 8 to 11, and our deliverance is definite, verses 12 and 13. There is promise in pain. The psalm begins with a plea. David says, Be gracious to me, O God. pain that David has here 
The mounting pressure is is persistent against David. He says in the first few verses, all day long. He says that three times in the first five verses. All day long his enemies are relentless. And there is no relief from their pursuits. It may be that a better way to translate what we have in verses 1 and 2, man tramples on me, is that man pants after me. They're in hot pursuit. They're breathing down my neck. And they come to attack him proudly. They come haughty on high to oppress him, and he has no reprieve from the enemy. Yet verse 3, we see a turn, an early turn in this psalm. There's a promise received. There's a grace that's taken hold of. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When the enemy is relentless, my rest is found in you. Here we see that that faith comes to action. And faith, we see, is the deliberate act of defiance in this particular emotional state of fear. That when fear creeps in, I turn to trust the Lord. And there's two things we need to take notice about about David's trust here about the faith that David is expressing first, is that faith rests in God. Faith rests in God. I put my trust in you. In God I trust. It's not a faith in faith. Right? It's not some kind of psychological exercise where he replaces the bad thoughts with good, happy thoughts. It's it's not David imagining himself in his happy place. His faith is directed and resting upon a person. It is resting upon his God. Secondly, we see that that faith has content. And the content of that faith is founded in God's word. How does David know that God is trustworthy? How does he know? How does does David know that that God is is powerful? How does David know that God is gracious? The first thing that he asks is for God to be gracious. Oh Lord, be gracious to me. How can he even make such a request? He does so because he knows these things about his God. He knows who his God is. He knows how his God has revealed himself as gracious and as powerful, as trustworthy. Among all the other different ways that the Lord has revealed himself. And this is an important point for us to grasp too. Faith has content. And if we are going to find rest in our God, we must Know our God. And that knowledge includes knowing who He is and knowing what He says. If we don't know God's ways, how then can we be comforted by His ways? If we don't know God's promises, how then could we possibly rest in God's promises? 
See, it's not the strength of our faith that we trust, but the strength and grace of God in whom we trust. And that trust comes by hearing who God is for us. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Hearing that word preached, listening to the word read, reading that word for ourselves. In it, the content of our faith is told and retold that we would know and that we would trust our God. David's turn from fear to faith in verses 3 and 4 is repeated in verses 10 and 11. And at the end of verse 4, and again at the end of verse 11, David asks this really bold question, which apart from knowing the surpassing excellencies of God, would really seem quite naive. He says, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? In verse 11. But David's not being naive here. In that question, David is exposing something deeply theological. He's exposing an infinite chasm between men and God. Between the evil that men can do and the goodness that God gives by His grace. Between the evils that we see and experience in this life and the mysteries of God's mighty works for the salvation of His people. Works that transcend and outweigh the fears and the dangers of this world. What can flesh do to me? David goes on to answer that question in verses 5 to 7. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. From those verses, it would seem that the answer to that question, what can flesh do to me, is they can do much. There's a lot that they can do to you. You see, the detractors are determined. Again, persistently, they injure his cause. They contrive evil. They hunt for him. They lurk. They watch. They wait. What can mortal man do to me? Think about those words for a minute. Are not almost all of our fears regarding what mortal man can do to us? They can slander us and thereby destroy our reputation. They can fire us from our jobs and then we have no way to support our families. They can break into our houses and they can steal everything that we own. They can wage war against our nation and shower us with bombs and with gunfire. They can persecute us. They can kill us. Our spouses can abandon us. Our children can walk in ways that grieve us. Our friends, they can betray us. What can mortal man do to me? They seem to be able to do a lot. 
Mortal men are doing quite a lot to David, too. The grief and distress abound and provide the context for this particular psalm. Yet here in verse 8 comes the contrast that really makes all the difference in the world. Though the detractors are determined, the protector's care is perfect. Look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? See, David's faith is not in his faith, but in God Almighty who takes care of him. Care that he describes here in the most tender and and kind and, and faithful way. Now, in the ancient Near East, thinking about the book that David talks about, in the ancient Near East, it was a common practice for mighty kings uh, to keep record of their victories and military endeavors and other significant events in their reign. They would record uh, these events to show their greatness and to provide future generations with A history, so they can look back and see how great this king was. And oftentimes, as you might imagine, those histories were quite skewed. They would leave out the losses, they would hype up the wins, and these were considered the annals of the kings. We get mention of such a record in the book of Esther when King Ahasuerus asked to have the annals of the king brought to him for bedtime reading. That was in Esther 6. And we actually have uh, existing copies of such annals from Assyrian kings. Like Asher Banerpal from the 7th century. And in these annals, this king would describe, in his book, he would describe how he would go into a city. And he would kill and skin the inhabitants and hang their bodies on the walls of the city as a sign of his greatness. That's how great this king is. Events recorded in their books. Verse 8 tells us that our Lord has a book too. But the context of that. The contents of that book are are quite different. You see, the great king of kings has a book in which are recorded important events in his kingdom. In his book, in his book of life, are the names of his redeemed children. But we see here in Psalm 56 that that's not all that's recording in his book. That's not all that he cares to remember. Do you take notice when your child is hurt? So does the Lord. And he keeps track. He he keeps count, David says, of your tossings or wanderings. He keeps count of all the times that you are restless. He, He keeps count of the fear and the anxieties. He collects your tears, even the ones that no one knows about. The Lord collects those tears in his bottle. 
This is really a way of saying that our tears and our sorrows are precious to our Lord. That they're not wasted. He writes down your pains in his book because they are significant events in his kingdom. When his children weep, when his, when his saints stumble, when you face sleepless nights, the Lord is remembering that. The Lord is keeping record of that. And he remembers it and he keeps track of it in order that you will be vindicated. That all those wrongs would be undone as he restores this broken world to wholeness. When he repays evil with justice. And gives to his children the fullness of his blessings. So that those sufferings, those tears, those pains would become light and momentary in light of the coming glory that is ours in the Lord Jesus. Think of how Jesus describes the Father's care in Matthew 10. Right there Jesus is telling his disciples that the life of discipleship is not a life in which there are no troubles, but in fact, it is certainly a life where there will be troubles. That they will face hardships. They will face persecution. But that does not mean that they're not cared for. Matthew 10, 29-31 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, if God himself is concerned with sparrows, how much more does he care about you whom he loves with a love that is so perfect and unchangeable that he sent his own son to die for your sins that you would be reconciled to him. If the infinite cost of the death of his son was not too great for him to pay for your salvation, what would he not give to keep and to protect those for whom Christ died? It is in that love for his people, which the scriptures speak over and over and over again, that David comes to the climactic words of the psalm. Words that stand over against the persistence of all that would assail us. What can we say to this? Look what David says at the end of verse 9. After his plea for grace, after describing his fear, he gives the most definite statement of faith. Our only comfort lies in this, David says, this I know, that God is for me. It is an explosive statement. How do I face heartache? How do I face fear? How do I face sorrows? This I know, that God is for me. 
Paul expounds this very statement of David, a truth pervading throughout the scriptures when he says in Romans 8.31, which we read earlier, after he declares the glories of the good news of Jesus, if God is for us, who can be against us? Wherein lies the surety that God is indeed for us? How do we know that God is for us? It is this, as Paul goes on in the next verse, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You see, we know for certain that God is for us because God in Christ was reconciling us to Himself. That He would be our God. That we would be His people. See, our trust in Him does not make us His. His love for us makes us His. His election of us from all eternity. His giving of His Son to redeem us in history. His sending His Spirit to grant us faith in our present reality is the ground of our cry of victory that God is for us and nothing in this world could separate us from His love. Nothing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, Paul says. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the loving kindness and blessing of God stands infinitely higher and is infinitely stronger than the schemes and terrors of anyone or anything in all creation that could be sent your way. Anything. Whatever it is in your mind that you're thinking, oh, but not this thing. Yes, that thing. Is that your confession? That God is for you. You see, it's a confession that comes not by wishful thinking, but through faith in Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners. And to bestow upon them the right and privilege to be called the children of God. And the source of our confidence? How do we know? What's the foundation there? God has told us. That's where David goes again in verse 10. He knows that God is for him because God has said it. And God has proved it in his works recorded in his word. See, confidence is not a feeling. Emotions fail us constantly. And in the course of our life, circumstances will often and always confuse us and they're going to perplex us and we're not going to understand it and we don't know where this thing came from and why it's happening to us. Maybe even this week. Maybe even this week you find yourself asking, Lord, how can you be for me when my life is in such shambles? How is it possible that you are for me? It doesn't look like it at all. 
How can you be for me when it feels like I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death and I'm all alone and darkness surrounds me and darkness seems to be my only comfort? How is it that you are for me? The Word of God gives light and truth. And it tells us of the Father's love. And declares to us the grace of Christ. Who is your God? What is He like? Is He out to get you? Is that what your God is like? Is He ready at any moment to turn on you? Does He seek to harm you? Is He breathing down your neck? If so, that's not David's God. If so, that's not the God that we have revealed to us. Now perhaps you're not trusting in Jesus. And in that case, God is your enemy. Because you don't trust Him. You don't know Him. Because your sins are still before Him. But even here as we see David pleading with the Lord for grace, if you are an enemy of God, the Lord calls you to to reach out and ask that He would be gracious to you. And guess how He will respond? With grace. Because Christ took upon Himself the sins of sinners in order that God would look upon sinners And see His beloved Son. And that is available to anybody who who looks to Jesus. Who recognizes that they are enemies of God. And they have nothing but sin to offer. See, the, the protector's care is perfect. For all of those who find Christ as their Savior. For if the protector's care is perfect, then our deliverance is definite. Verses 12 and 13. David goes on, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life. David, knowing that God is for him, for us knowing that in Christ God is for us, it produces a response of thanksgiving. And David's speaking about particular offerings that were given under the Mosaic system. Thank offerings. And what we find in uh, the description of these offerings is that thank offerings were not something required, but they were something that were freely given in recognition of God's loving kindness. And here David, knowing that God is indeed for him, offers thanksgiving to the Lord. But notice that it's not based upon the absence of dangers And it's not thanksgiving that is based upon the absence of fears, 
but it is thanksgiving based upon the surety of the Lord's deliverance. You see, the psalm says nothing about David being relieved of his troubles, but that in those troubles, with eyes fixed upon the Lord, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, faith does not mean that we have all the answers to our problems. It doesn't mean that we have everything uh, about to go our way when we want it to go our way. See, faith is knowing that God is for us. That Christ indeed has redeemed us. And let us remember something very important. That Christ's work of redemption did not come apart from adversity and hardship, but through it. It is Christ who sings this psalm before we ever sing this psalm. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For though his father's will led him to the cross where he bore our sins, he did so knowing that his father was for him. And so through him, we receive that same assurance. Who can fathom the love of God in Christ? Who, who can understand the Lord's ways? When we contemplate our salvation and contemplate Christ's death and resurrection for us, we can't comprehend the mystery of infinite, unchangeable, and eternal divine love. Can you comprehend it? Can you grasp the expanse of it? No, we can't, but we don't need to. As Herman, as Herman Boving says, so beautifully we cannot come anywhere near calculating what love enables one to do and what eternal infinite divine love can achieve but we don't have to understand this mystery either we need only to believe it gratefully rest in it and glory and rejoice in it and with this mystery of divine love Received tells us, it tells us that there is something more precious in being in a relationship with our God than having a life that is free from suffering here and now. That having Christ is more precious than even the greatest uh, blessings in this life that we could have in terms of our finances, in terms of our health, in terms of our relationships. See, the salvation which we have received in Jesus, our souls being delivered from death, gives to us something more valuable, something more comforting than any goodness this world can bestow on us. So that even the greatest joys of this life end up paling in comparison to walking before our God in the light of life. Even the greatest sufferings in this life, Paul says, are not worth comparing to the glory we have in Jesus. Verse 13. 
For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. We walk before our God. Walking before the Lord, the righteous ones, those who trust in Christ by faith according to His grace, do not find an alternative enemy. They do not cower before Him, but walk before Him in light, sweet communion, inexpressible and full of joy. As Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Oh, may the Lord fix your faith upon his glory, that the fears and and the darkness of the world would fade in comparison to the fellowship that you have with God, knowing that your God is for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in which you record for us all of your glorious deeds. We thank you, Lord, for your great work of redemption in Christ and for the reality and the hope that we have that you are our God and you are for us all because of Christ. Lord, would you bless these words to us in Christ's name. Amen.